Cool. All right, so here we are. Uh, week one and two combined of the MCU Road to Infinity War podcast. Yeah, yeah. Prototype name. Uh, I am Jeremy Visser. I'm uh, fronting this podcast here with uh, movie and MCU expert Sam Nicholson. Howdy, howdy. And uh, we're going to be going through, firstly, uh, week one, which we are starting a little late, um, in the chronological movie order of the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, phase one, two, and and three, as we head up to Avengers Infinity War. Um, So all... TV shows have been cut out of this this overview, so it's strictly the films, the shorts, the tie-in comics, and then adaptations when necessary. Right, yeah. So, <clears throat> starting with the the uh, what I've gotten out of the the chronological order, it starts off with Captain America: First Vengeance, the comic. Which I don't know time-wise when it came out, but I think quite a bit later, uh, as it talks about some some interesting stuff and does some pretty cool things for comic tie-ins. Agreed. Um. So let's start with that. Uh, it's a long one. I think it's like eight semi-small comics that yeah. tie in together. I'm fairly sure it was the longest one out of all the uh, out of all the MCU comic tie-ins. It was like eight issues or something. But it was quite an interesting read, I thought. Definitely. Um, what, what do you remember about it? And what did you take away from it? And what do you think that it... How it, it adds into the whole expanded universe? Well, I've read... Uh, like, like, you're making way through the comics right now. I've read... Um, all of them that tie in that are like actual MCU canon and most of them are just kind of you know one shots or like little kind of fun background information just to the movie but this is what I'd like to see them do more more of like this is a full kind of self-contained arc dealing with uh, Steve and Steve and Bucky when they're when they're very young you see him uh, you see his mother die actually I remember you see uh, um, I can't remember Sarah Rogers she dies of uh, tuberculosis, and uh, then you kind of see like Cap, like a nerdy small guy like Cap, just trying to get by day to day in uh, in Brooklyn and and dealing with his like uh, you know his his small frame and being bullied and things like that, and just forging a, a friendship with with Bucky. And right. uh, throughout that, then you, if I remember correctly, each individual issue kind of dives into the backstory of one. Like you get one doing one for Zola, then you get uh, Red Skull. And uh, just kind of some formation about um, the how Hydra is kind of operating at this time when they're, you know, a, a Nazi offshoot. Uh, it's quite interesting. Definitely. Uh, so I took some notes on what happens in the comics to try and figure out, like, how this impacted the whole thing. Um, we get to see him and Bucky meet, which I thought was, was kind of cool. And uh, he he trains him in the comics, tries to whip him into shape, which That's is right. kind of the funniest thing for for Steve Rogers to do because everything he was 
was from the super soldier serum physically. So <laughs> it, it makes you wonder sometimes because the, the interesting thing about Captain America is that the super soldier serum literally makes him the peak of what a, a human being can be. So mm -hmm. he doesn't actually have super strength, which is a common misconception. Um, he's just as, as strong as, as a human could physically be. So, like, Spider-Man is stronger than Captain America because he has the proportional strength of a spider, right? So, I mean, it's just kind of like a... Almost like a Mary Sue story, I guess. I, I forget what the, the, the male term for a Mary Sue is, but when you write a character that's like everything you want to be. So, so for example, Twilight uh, is a Mary Sue story because it's just like it's poorly written and it's very clear that the author um, just wrote a character and, and kind of what she would want to do. And, you know, so that's why so many girls are, are into it. They're, they're arguing, you know, like, oh, I, I wish I had two, you know, supernatural guys fighting over me. Ah. <laughs> Um, so, so Steve Rogers was kind of like that, where he started off, you know, this weak, scrawny kid that, you know, a lot of comic fans could relate to, and then he goes through this transformation and just turns into this ridiculously buff dude. So, so I always thought, thought it was kind of funny that, that Bucky was trying to train him and, you know, get him to buff up, because, like, why, I mean, couldn't Steve Rogers have just hit the gym and then became everything he was that's a good question that's a good question <clears throat> so that's so that that was that was one of the parts of the comic the tie-in um we get to see the background of johan smith schmidt which i thought was really interesting yeah i think he's uh, well we'll get into more i guess discussing about him later but i definitely think he's one of the best uh villains the mc mcu has done i think he's just very charismatic very interesting villain so it was nice kind of seeing it like his more motivations and stuff fleshed out a little bit more in the comic I really yeah. like the duel, the duo of him and Zola. I think he's, you know, it's like the, the really smart, um, or so the really brash and crazy leader who has a, a goal with his uh, smart and invaluable assistant, which he doesn't even realize the full value of. I think until too late. Yeah, and then the fact that Johann Schmidt is a is a scientist, which I feel like isn't touched on too much. Like like his own work isn't brilliant enough, so. We see him approaching uh, Abraham Erskine to, to, you know, work with him, and then he ends up just taking his work, uh, the the prototype for the super soldier serum, and and that turning him into the Red Skull, which uh, is just something he tends to do. So it's weird seeing a scientist who has, you know, is supposed to be a brilliant mind, but mostly what he's fascinated with is magical relics and stuff. Yeah. And, uh... Norse mythology and all this fun stuff but then he's just taking from other minds more brilliant than him that's true which is an interesting interesting thought um, so we see yeah we see uh, we see Zola before before Schmidt picked him up so he's doing work on robotics which is a kind of a background to his character that that is like I guess more easter egg than than important to the overall story mm-hmm um, what else do we see? We see Stark having worked on Vibranium at some point. I forget when, but it's... H Howard Stark is is um, 
put in contact with people from the uh, strategic scientific strategic reserve. Is that what the SSR stands for? That's the SSR, baby. So, so you see the creation of that with Howard Stark, and he talks about vibranium, which comes into play with the shields. Uh, and then we see um, Erskine also, you know, fleeing the country and and coming to join the SSR. Um, and we've also forgotten the most important part would be my my girl uh, Peggy Carter. You get to see her in full World War Two disguise, completely disguised as a as a maid before she rescues uh, Erskine from uh, from his perils. And that is, yeah, arguably the most important part of the entire um, First Vengeance comic tie-in is she's Agent 13 for for the SSR. And that's huge significance, actually, in this film specifically. And then later, Sharon Carter, who's Agent 13 in in more famous Marvel uh, comics lore. So I thought that was really funny that they had her the same thing, you know, which is kind of a parallel to uh, to Bucky being in the 107th and Steve wanting to be in the 107th because his father was in the 107th. And then you see this kind of, you know, Peggy to, to share an Agent 13 um, title that they kind of covet. So I feel like that's parallels between Sharon and Steve, which we'll explore later in the in the MCU Um well, we know that, uh, Steve likes his Carter girls, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that he does. Um, we get to we get introduced to the Howling Commandos and see how they yes. meet up and start by fighting each other. And that. then uh, Bucky actually gives um, Dum Dum Dugan his, his nickname in, in a very yeah. cheesy scene where he just calls him a Dum Dum. But Dum Dum Dugan is the best. I mean, he is the absolute oh, he's best. The man. And he has he's the, the best man. name, so I, I admire Bucky for it. <laughs> Definitely. And I, I, I feel like it they would be remiss to, to completely skip over why he's called Dum Dum Dugan, because it's such a ridiculous name, and he's such a great character that they're like, well, we gotta at least explain it so people can laugh and be like, ah, well... Congratulations, you, you had to. <laughs> so that's, I think, everything super important from from the first Vengeance uh, comic. Yeah, just just looking back at it, I just I, I would like to see, like I said earlier, I would like to see Marvel kind of attempt uh, more things like this. Like the MCU comic ties have been fun, but this one I felt like like gave a lot of backstory and was a story within its own right and helped flesh out a lot of like the motivations and and characters that you see in in uh, First Avengers. So. I would like to see them um, do more more like this in the future. Definitely. I, I would say it's arguably the most important MCU comic tie-in as, as someone who hasn't um, read almost any of them. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> As someone who's read all of them, I, I, I agree that it is. It's, uh, the, the, as it goes on, the others are more just kind of like short back snippets, but this is like a full-fledged story, which I enjoyed. Right. So uh, let's move on to the the feature film for week one here. Uh, so Captain America: The First Avenger is chronologically, obviously the 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 first film. If you're if you're watching them in a general film sense and and don't go too crazy into it, where there's every scene from every movie that ties in into a into a crazy way that involves finding the scenes more work than actually watching the movies. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Captain America, the first Avenger. What's your what's your letterbox score for that movie? 
Uh, a four to five, or a good old eight out of ten. I uh, I very much enjoyed this movie. I, this is probably one of the, I think one of three MCU movies that I didn't see in theaters. Not for any reason, just one of those ones that uh, you know it was before the MCU had be- become like a major event. Like I would, you know, it was still early on in the days, and I, I wanted to see it. I just never got around to it, but uh, until it came out on on video. But I very much like this movie. Um, I, I think it's a lot of fun. I think uh, I really like the World War II vibe. I, I really would like to see Marvel explore more period pieces in the future. I think it's really neat to see them do that, like they did with Agent Carter. Uh, Captain Marvel, we know, is going to be set in the 90s, I, I, and I like that. This feels like a a 90s movie that, you know those old kind of old-fashioned 90s movies where they do take place in World War II? This is what, in, a, in a good way, this reminded me of it. Like the, the score, the, the setting, the, the way that everyone acts, uh, it just has a, a really cool... World War II uh, theme to it and I think the director who I believe is Joe Johnson actually did quite a good job with this I, I, I think he made a very charismatic cast and thematically set up a lot in this movie that would pay off in the, the other two movies in the Captain America trilogy which I think uh, laying the groundwork here is, is what, uh, what allowed this movie to work so well definitely um, and yeah let's, let's, so let's start off with the director we got Joe Johnston uh, are you familiar with any of his other films? Uh, I am arguably the best movie uh, ever made, uh, Jumanji. He did. Um, I did not know that, actually, so oh, that is... Well, it's a classic, and uh, yep. I would not put it in the same category as Jumanji, but I, I will always love Jurassic Park 3. <laughs> That's kind of a... Uh, not not a common opinion, but uh, but but Jurassic Park 3 was, was fun. But uh, he also did a movie, a very underrated movie, called October Sky, about a group of students uh, trying to launch, like... Uh, been a long time they're trying, they're trying to launch something into space yeah and it, it was it was quite good so he i think they kind of chose him um because and another movie he did was called the rocketeer which i think was like uh also like a superhero movie set in the uh the early 20th century so i think they chose him because he could tap in to that uh aesthetic and that vibe from the early 20th century and and make it into a marvel movie which i think i think he succeeded in doing that is uh, that is a good point. Yeah, um, I was I was going to bring up Rocketeer, uh, which I haven't seen, but I've Me heard neither. great things about. Same. But yeah, so so definitely that would be his experience doing uh, uh, a comic movie. Um, I think he also worked on the the set of I want to say Raiders of the Lost Ark, doing oh, special effects and Star Wars. He did effects for uh, the original Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. So yeah, Damn. you're right about Raiders of the Ark. This man has been. Uh, has been around. So, uh, yeah, he... Um, I don't want to say unfortunately, because it turned out pretty well, but didn't return to direct any other movies. But uh, for for what Cap was, which uh, I actually did see this one in theaters, um, the, the only one I think I haven't seen in theaters was Thor. And I got away with that because I watched it. <laughs> this is the only time I've ever done this, and we'll never do it again. Uh, someone had a cam version of it oh. that was supposed to be decent quality, so we ended up watching it, and my friend fell asleep while we were watching it, and I actually had a bad first impression with Thor because the quality was just kind of painful to watch. Uh, so uh, You're lucky I don't end this podcast right now. I'm, I'm ashamed that you'd watch an MCU, <laughs> MCU my- film in, in cam quality for shame. My my dirty secret. I'm surprised you've missed some in theaters. What what were the other two aside from Cap? Uh, I think they were early on. It was it was Hulk. I didn't see Hulk in theaters. I don't think I, I didn't see Thor: uh, The Dark World in theaters. But everything else I've seen 
in, in, and Captain America, but everything else I've seen since in theaters. Like, as you know, it's like, now when I go to see a new MCU movie, it's just like, we always make sure not to miss it. But back then, like, not that I wasn't interested, but the MCU was just forming up, and it was in its early days, I think, is what, what that was about. So, um, I'm, I feel like I, I've been having a little bit of a brain fart with this lately, but Incredible Hulk was the first MCU movie, right? No, Iron Man was. I, so, yeah, sorry, when Iron Man, then... Then, Hulk. then Incredible Hulk? Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense, thinking about the uh, the after credit scenes. So I must... Did I see Hulk in theaters? I don't remember now. I might not have, actually. But I definitely remember counting down the days for Iron Man. Uh, Amen. After I made him my, my character of choice in uh, um, Ultimate Alliance. <laughs> uh, so... All right, so so Captain America, uh, the cast is pretty stellar. Uh, Chris Evans um, started uh, a very elite club of um, people who played the Human Torch, who went on to play other MCU characters, and you know. <laughs> now I'm not going to lie. That. When uh, when I remember when Chris Evans was first announced, I just didn't see it. I I hadn't seen him in a whole lot. I had seen. Uh, him in Sunshine, which was a, an amazing movie, and but other than that, he had been like Fantastic Four. It seemed like he'd done a lot of like uh, romantic comedy type movies. He was in Scott Pilgrim. That was a pretty small role. So when it was announced that he was Captain America, I, I wasn't like I was kind of you know met on it. Like I was just I didn't really think it was that great of a call. Um, but then as he's performed in the Captain America movies, I think he's been one of the best castings they've done. Like he, I again, this could be also be attributed because I'm. Not too, I wasn't too knowledgeable about Captain America going in. I always thought of him as kind of like a, I don't know, like a corny character, like the way that Superman is for DC. Like he just you know, like the name Captain America, and and the the way that they picture him in this movie when he first gets his powers and he's just going around doing like those shows for the troops. That's kind of the Captain America I pictured, and and that's why probably coming into Chris Evans, I was thinking really like I you know he was good in Sunshine, but does this guy have what it takes and. You know, here I am, three Captain America movies later, and, and he was definitely, definitely the right call. Yeah, and he's become so iconic as as Steve Rogers now that it's hard to imagine anyone else playing the role. So, I mean, yeah. just wow at his performance in it. Um, we round up the cast with uh, Hugo Weaving, whose name I always forget. <laughs> Every time I think of the Red Skull, I'm like, yeah, it's Agent... Uh, Agent Smith, right? Like, I, what, is, what is his name? I'm like, I know it's something weird. Because, I don't know, Hugo is not the first thing I think of. I always try and think it's, like, something Weaver, and then it eventually <laughs> comes to me, but I get brain fart every time I think of it. Uh, he's fantastic. What little you get to see him as, as Johann Schmidt. Um, he, he kills it with his, uh, his red skull face. Uh, yeah. we, got, we got Stanley Tucci as uh, Abraham Erskine, um, who is just a treat. As always, I know, poor guy. I felt um, yeah, such such a well, such a kind character. I just always because I didn't know, like I said, I didn't know much about Cap going in, so I just assumed he was going to be Trey Cap or you know, screw Cap over in some way. But no, yeah, he ended up being like a great guy, and he just had an unfortunate, uh, unfortunate death. And but he really did want what was best for Cap. And then we got um, T- Toby Jones is is Zola. That is correct. Criminally underrated character actor Toby Jones. He's like he's everything I've seen him in. He's been phenomenal, and I love his performances as Zola. I think it's it's just well done. He's he's got the got the the henchman who knows his place, and well, he's more than a henchman, but 
you know, he knows his place, and he, he's, he actually seems to genuinely love what he's doing. So he's quite the interesting character. Definitely, definitely. Uh, we got Sebastian Stan playing Bucky Barnes. We got Haley Atwell, who is iconic as Agent Carter, Ar- arguably as iconic as Chris Evans is uh, Steve Rogers. Um, we got Tommy Lee Jones as, as Colonel Phillips. Um, any anyone else I'm missing here? I mean, I feel like those are the, the titular roles right there. We have our boy, uh, another criminally underrated actor, Dominic Cooper, as uh, Mr. Howard Stark. Who Oh, and he kills it as Stark, too. Yeah. I know, that's one thing I found interesting about the MCU is that they switch between him and um, John Slattery, who uh, plays... Like a Tony, he plays Howard in um, Iron Man two and Civil War. So I find it interesting that they switch between these characters, uh, and they're both times. really great at it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Because Howard Stark is a very integral, which I didn't expect coming in. Like, I knew, I knew from the comics that Howard Stark was important, but I just for some reason didn't picture his role in the movie series being that important. But it, it actually has been up until up through until Civil War, and he's done a great job. Or they both done great jobs playing his character. Definitely. So uh, I was thinking we just run through the general plot of the movie and point out things of import and Easter eggs and, you know, just talk about what worked and what didn't. That sounds good. Um, so we start off with, with Steve Rogers being found frozen in ice, right? Yes. So we got his, his shield visible as this uh, crew is uh, is breaking them out there. Um and, and and what do they say? Get the get the colonel on the phone. Sounds right. And I, so I, so I guess they must be talking about about Fury, because um, I believe he's Colonel Fury. Commander Fury. I don't I don't know what his title is. Um, so so they're they're getting a hold of someone and they you know are going to break him out. So uh, they they stick with the the classic uh, frozen in the ice storyline, which defines Steve Rogers, a man out of time. You know, with with the current, uh, and that's that's the great thing about Marvel. It's been going around for so long that uh, so so for example, um, uh, Avengers issue four, um, I don't nineteen. 63, maybe 64. I'm not sure when they start doing it. Um, it they, they find Cap frozen in ice and he joins the Avengers. That's that's how he's found. So they stick to that story, which is great. And yeah. when it happened, uh, Captain America had his own comics back in the Golden Age. So, you know, during the, the 40s and stuff. Um, and then they just kind of petered out and then... I think in the fifties they tried bringing him back as a as a school teacher fighting you know the <laughs> the the Russian threat there during uh, Cold War times and stuff. Sounds it didn't really about right. uh, yeah didn't really work out, and they ended up retconning that. So they bring him back in the sixties, and he had been created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, and Joe Simon at this point is gone from Marvel Comics, I believe. Stan Lee's running things, you know, he started Fantastic Four and all these other comics, and then it brought up to the Avengers, and then he brings them back with Jack Kirby, his creator, and they start writing these stories that start discovering, uh, you know, things that happened to Cap during during the war, and kind of 
for those who didn't read during the Golden Age of comics, during the Silver Age, they can have it all explained and they see what's going on. Um, so I believe in this in these comics, they they talk about they introduce Peggy Carter as you know this love that that could never be. So when he comes back, he starts seeing her around, but he's like, "There's no way. It's been like you know twenty years. Like how she she would be way older." And so I mean. It's kind of funny because it's 20 years, so she would have been, like, 40. And if it was this great love, like, who cares? Yeah. But, no, so they had to write a new a new love interest, which apparently is her, uh, her younger sister, uh, Sharon Carter. And then as, you know, that story came into modern times, they had to be, oh, no, it's her, it's her younger niece now, which is, is current uh, in the MCU, uh, the, the niece of, of Peggy Carter. But so, so in the MCU, it's like a, he's been in, in the ice for 70 years, whereas, you know, when he was brought back during the Silver Age, it would have been 20 years. So it's this comics is messy in that it has this sliding scale of what happens when, like, how is Peter Parker around, you know, during like during whenever Vietnam happened or like, you know, the Korean War or whatever. And then he's he's still only like maybe 30 and it's present day, and we're talking about Obama being in office, and, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So it's it's nice to kind of have... They, they always try and revamp stuff and make it more new, and, and this is happening now, so doing this in the MCU and having that 70 years is is a lot more of a constant they can work with, and I thought that was interesting. So they stuck to the frozen and ice. Uh, and then we go back to... When does this take place? 1943? Yeah, it takes place, uh, I want to say the, the, the chunk of it takes place uh, 1942, 1943. Before so, World War II ends. Pearl Harbor was when? 40... Uh, it was December 7th, 41. So this would have been shortly after the U.S. got involved. There we go. So, uh, for for the, uh, the listeners there, um... Sam knows his history, and I know very little about <laughs> about historical events, so uh, he will be a keen ally in this podcast. There we go. Um, but in, in the golden age of comics, it, you know, they started around 1940, they started doing Captain America comics, um, and Namor and the original Human Torch were doing comics starting 1939, and it started, you know, bringing in stuff in the war, and it took a dark turn in comics after... Pearl Harbor happened, um, so I thought it was good to to they, they kind of sped up his involvement and his origin story to happening after Pearl Harbor, so there's not any messy like issues with with all the dark stuff that happened when it was you know post Pearl Harbor uh, agree U.S. and uh, it seems like like um, as um, Jim Morita he's he's Japanese America J- Japanese American. And, uh, you know, that would not have been something that would have been possible in 1942 when, or 1941 when America was terrified of, of the Japanese. So I, th- I think this, this was a conscious move. Not that this movie would ever in the present day be racist like that, but it was, it was a, a conscious move to, like, have um, a character like Jim Reed, I think, be part of, you know, Captain America. He's a, a good man trying to fight with Captain America. Absolutely. And, and the ambiguity for, for Steve Rogers in fighting against foreign powers and defending America is a lot a lot 
more consistent and, and better in this film because of things like that that we'll touch on later as we get through the events. Uh, so, right, right after we we see that they're digging up Cap here, and you know we go we go back into to nineteen forty three because I, I don't think the the events take place too much before uh, we get introduced to Steve, where Johann Schmidt is in uh, Norway, maybe. Uh, yes, I believe so. Um, and so he pops into some old temple of some sort, uh, being guarded by, uh, good old Filch from, uh, from the Harry <laughs> Potter series there. Yes, that's right. Which is actually, a a little cameo I, I, uh, I missed several times while watching it. Um, oh. yeah, yeah. Uh, so he, so we got a crypt there with a, with a tomb and there's a Viking warrior in it holding a fake copy of the Tesseract. Um, and they refer to the Tesseract at this point as the jewel of Odin's treasure room. So so right away we got we got Vikings, we got the Tesseract, we got Odin's name thrown in there. And I remember watching this in theaters uh, with my buddy Sean and a couple random people. And Schmidt looks up at this giant stone carving of a tree on on the wall and being because uh, I don't know a lot of this stuff from history but I know it in pop culture or video games so I look up and I didn't say it out loud because I wasn't like sitting beside anyone that I was like comfortable with vocalizing these thoughts out in case I'm <laughs> wrong but in my head I went Yggdrasil and then Johann Schmidt looks up and goes Yggdrasil, and I died. I, I was like, yes! I wish I had said that out loud so people could have experienced that, but that is... Oh, man. Now it's forever gone. Forever gone. Uh, so we see Yggdrasil, the, the world tree, which uh, houses the, the nine realms. Uh, ten if you're a Marvel fan. Um, and at the bottom, you see a little serpent, which would commonly be assumed to be like a you know Garden of Eden reference there mm -hmm. but it's actually uh, Jormungander which is a serpent dragon type thing from, from Norse mythology um, I know I've played a couple video games that, that have a dragon named Jormungander so, so I thought that was interesting uh, it pops the eye and out comes the real Tesseract now the Tesseract was originally known as the Cosmic Cube and is a favorite possession of the Red Skull in Captain America stories. So, in this, it's called the Tesseract and it's an Infinity Stone. Which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is the first introduction to Infinity Stones in the MCU. Like, even chronologically, but even with the movies coming out, I don't think, I don't think Iron Man or Hulk or even Thor did Thor outright mention uh, the Tesseract? Uh, no. But... So so I guess it's the first mention of it, and we don't know it's an Infinity Stone, though. We just know it's the Tesseract. Uh, Thor 1, there's no mention of it, but I think in the background of Odin's treasure room, you see the Infinity Gauntlet as a little Easter egg. Mm. 
Uh, so there's at least that, um, which is a fake Infinity Gauntlet, if people weren't aware of that, but that that's something we'll touch on later. Um, and yeah, Loki's, uh, Loki's staff has one of them, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, and Thor did come out before, because it was Captain, yeah, it was Captain America the First Avenger that leads up to the Avengers, so... So the first appearance we saw of it, publication order, would have been just in Thor, right? Nothing else before that? I believe so. And then... But this this chronologically is the first one. So... So we see that. Um, so, yeah. We, we, go, we go to uh, tiny Steve Rogers doing what he does. Uh... I mean, I, don't, I guess we don't meticulously need to go through the entire story, but uh, no. But what I do, what I do like, um, one thing with these Marvel movies is what they're doing with visuals. I think is pretty, pretty phenomenal. Like, like if you think of movies like Doctor Strange and even the original Avengers, like what they've done with visual effects is is amazing. And even like these the little things like this, like Steve, like this is something that probably wouldn't be possible. This movie came out in 2011. That probably wouldn't be possible until about that time. Showing like Chris Evans' head on a small body, having it look real. And like and that, that way, because really trying to get his kind of small, meek frame to him to to make him realize, like when he first emerges from that pod and he's chiseled with the twenty five pack, and, and you see him the smoke billowing out, and when you see the transformation from Steve being thin and gangly to Steve being a massive, you know, Adonis, it's really interesting to see that that would have been possible without the visual effects. And I think that's one thing that we just take for granted because it's a Marvel movie you expect visual effects but it's little things like this that have uh, that have allowed some of the most coolest things uh, to happen in the MCU absolutely and and there is no uh, more necessary example of that than scrawny Steve Rogers because mm-hmm. he is scrawny as, <laughs> as, yeah, as, as the one guy said someone someone get this kid a sandwich like, <laughs> damn um, so yeah that's that's something that I found very uh very neat um and then yeah we just kind of get to know his personality a little bit he's you know standing up for what he believes in doesn't run from a fight yeah. uh bucky is kind of everything he wants to be uh and i guess we yeah we can start there so bucky uh in the comics not at all like that he's a kid sidekick who's who's you know parents were in the army and passed away so he's this little orphan kid at the the camp that Steve Rogers is in and uh, over time they kind of changed his story so you know he's a little older and he's a a sniper and you know uh, a field agent but none of that stuff was was true in the beginning Uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby made him uh, basically like a more combat ready um, Robin Combat ready Robin, I like it. And Stanley hated kid sidekicks. He hated sidekicks in general, so that stopped once they brought Cat back. It was, you know, they they wrote a story with what happened to Bucky and, you know, killed him off because Stanley did not want that. So uh seeing him is uh is pretty great. Um I really like their take on it and they do him pretty well. Uh so Bucky takes Steve to the Stark Expo, 1943, and there's a lot of neat things going on in there. Um, yeah. A scene, I think I'd read in an Easter egg 
and was like, what? I didn't know that, but completely forgot about and since having read through the Golden Age, saw it, paused the film and was like, holy shit, you see this glass tube with a man in, with a red suit in it. And it says, Dr. Phineas Horton, uh, something synthetic man. Uh, so reading the Golden Age, I, I didn't actually know he was a synthetic man yet, but Dr. Phineas Horton created the original Human Torch in the comic oh, in 1939. So that synthetic man is the original Human Torch, which is also kind of a fun nod because that was, you know, Chris Evans played yeah. the, the Fantastic Four Human Torch. But, uh, yeah, so the Human Torch was very active during World, World War II along with Namor, so that's a neat little Easter egg there that I really... Uh, didn't pick up on in the multiple times I've seen this film before. Nice. Well, that's one thing I like uh, the, that that little segment of the expo. I think is really well done. It's uh, I like that you get to see a lot of the kind of the retro futurism happening, like all these you know technologies and things that you know couldn't have existed in 1942 or 1943. But it, it allows like the Marvel technology they have in the movies now, like Tony Stark, you know, using computers and stuff that just appear in front of his hands. Like we know this is impossible. But that's one thing I think is kind of fun about this is that it allows going all the way back to the 40s that there's this alternate world this Marvel MCU that uh, allows that the, the technology like this is something that exists in 1940 so it's kind of cool that it, to see like the the period piece setting with the kind of Marvel technology intermingled is like a nice little nice little touch and you get a lot of that at this expo definitely definitely uh, so we see Howard Stark with his attempt at a, at a floating car which uh, I'm not sure when he he finishes that, but uh, one of those ends up in the hands of uh, good old Phil Coulson there. So we kind of see the prototype at the at the expo there, which is fun. Lola, Lola, yeah, um, and yeah, using using the the Stark Expo, which uh, we see in Iron Man Two. Um, it's, I mean, everyone should be watching these in publication order their first run through but every time after that you can really benefit from a chronological watch because that's it's it's not the way it came out but you you know there's only so much information you can get from that and seeing it in chronological order is just it's just a lot for, more fun so it's it's neat that in this film they kind of built on that we, we get howard stark thrown in how he's intro you know intra integral in in building shield and you know starting the the ssr so seeing him there is is pretty neat, um, and then I, I mean it's pretty obvious when they show it, but I, I don't I didn't really realize that the entire time Steve is talking to to Bucky saying that he's not going to go dancing with the girls, he's going to get another try getting enlisted into the army. That um, Erskine's eavesdropping and listening to him and thinking this is a guy I I want, and as we see in the the first Vengeance comics. Um, he kind of sees him at that point and decides this is the guy I want no matter what. So the entire time, you know, he's he's got him at Camp uh, Leahy there, or Lehigh, or however you pronounce it, um, and is, is thinking, you know, he's not just uh, a choice, he's the obvious choice. He kind of, from that moment, decided that this is who it was going to be. Because it's not about the physicality of a, of a person, exactly. it's about what's inside that determines what the super soldier will serum will do to someone. So really at that moment, 
before he even talked to him. He kind of knew, and there were tests that he passed, but at that moment, really, is kind of when he decided Steve Rogers is going to be the super soldier. Yeah, well, Steve, because Steve does display the, the qualities that he wants. You know, he doesn't back down from fights. He's he's very strong-willed, and he's, you know, he's smart. And <clears throat> these are all things that he sees. But but I think to Erskine, it's someone who hasn't had physical strength before, who hasn't been able to, you know, win a fight, or but still wants to keep trying and fight for what's right. I think he, he, he values that much more in somebody, which is why he's looking for someone like Steve, someone who appreciates those values, even when he doesn't have the ability to fight for them, he tries. Definitely. Um, and it's uh, because there's such a history of rampant racism in Golden Age Captain America comics, I find it's really important how delicately they handled that, so... When he's talking to, to Erskine, he's like, oh, so you want to go kill some Nazis? And then Steve, you know, kind of like, it's like, that's, you, or is this what you're into or is this a test? And then he's like, yeah, it's a test. And he's like, I just don't like bullies. It doesn't matter where they're from. And yeah, that's like that the, the setting stone there for him, you know, defending America, but not being against every other country. Agreed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we go through the whole super soldier serum stuff. Uh, any, anything in that entire camp, how he turns up to, into, uh, Captain America stuff you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, not particularly. I just, I, I like the, the, the relationships that he establishes. Like, I really like, uh, Colonel Phillips. I think he's, like, just a, a well, well done character. And, uh, you know, he meets him and has to deal with, with him and his doubts as to whether he can actually be this super soldier. He meets Peggy Carter who sees him when he's small and frail and he of course instantly uh, falls in love with her and um, and yeah just him forging his relationships and, uh, and and coming you know getting used to what life in the army is actually like and and all that but other than that I think that's uh, I think you've covered it pretty well. Um, yeah there's uh, I, I really like the flag scene. I think that's one of my favorite scenes in yes. the movie. Um that, that really, in a nutshell, shows what Steve Rogers is like. The uh, the sergeant that's, you know, saying no one can grab this flag is uh, Sergeant Duffy, who's actually uh, um, a recurring character in the Golden Age Captain America comics. He is in charge of Steve Rogers, who, in in the Golden Age comics, is, uh, is supposed to be this bumbling oaf of a character because he wants Captain America to be a secret identity. And, you know, higher-ups in the army know this, but Sergeant Duffy doesn't. So Sergeant Duffy hates Steve Rogers. He's constantly punishing him and, you know, making him do all these things and just is, is this, con like, constant source of uh, comedic relief. So it's, uh, I never really realized that that was the same character until then because we see such a small amount of him. But, yeah, characters like him and Hodge apparently have uh, their, their, comic their uh, counterparts in the comics. Interesting. Um... So, yeah, we go through Project Rebirth. Uh, and another thing I really liked was um, where Colonel Phillips goes, you don't win wars with niceness, when he's talking about Hodge being the the superior choice, and then Erskine says he's a bully. And I think that's something that Erskine was aware of that Phillips hadn't really thought about. Like, you, you get a bully, you give him the powers that that Captain America had because I mean the peak physical condition and everything he's done with it he's done crazy amounts so you give that to someone that's a bully you win the war the war's done but then you're left with the problem of what happens after the war and 
Erskine was kind of thinking about that, but I don't think had any idea that, like, he created Steve Rogers, you know, he, they, they won the war, they, they did everything that Phillips wanted, but then everything that Cap goes on to do after the war is really important. Agreed. Um, also, the, the whole Project Rebirth thing is, like, almost scene for scene, straight from Captain America Comics number one, uh, it's, you know, this old storefront, uh, the old lady who has the machine gun is actually in the comics. I think in the oh, comics really? she's wearing a mask or something. But I thought it was a really funny nod with that Easter egg and keeping that in. Uh, everything goes pretty much the same way. Even to the point of saying uh, they're infusing him with Vita Rays. That's straight from the comics, because what the hell are Vita Rays, really? <laughs> I think back in the day, if it just sounded scientific enough, you were good to go. Vita Rays. Sounds like a real thing. <laughs> um... Also, as soon as he becomes Captain America, uh, the only complaint I think I have with the film is uh, that I feel like they kind of branded him wrong. Like, he should have been maybe Captain Canuck, because the first two <laughs> lines he says after getting the super soldier serum in, a, in him is, he says, I'm sorry, twice. <laughs> so I'm like, what kind of American hero is this? He sounds Canadian. I'm sorry. Like, eh? he... He, he goes to push Peggy out of the way, and Peggy goes, Ah, oh, I was going to shoot the guy in the car, and he goes, I'm sorry. And then, yeah, he, he, he's chasing after the car, smashes into a window because he's not used to his weight, and he runs out, I'm sorry. And I just, I thought that was a, a funny thing. <laughs> Never picked up on before. <clears throat> Me um, and then he follows, uh, I think the guy's name's Heinz Kruger, um, to... Pier 13 which is interesting that they keep really you know go like harping on that number you got agent 13 and then this is pier 13 now mm-hmm. um, which I thought was <clears throat> neat I, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, really important numerology in movies I feel like anytime you have a inconsequential number you should and, and you have a history of, of a comic background like this you should really be finding some way to to, to make some kind of Easter egg that fans can pick up on. <clears throat> um, so, unless there's anything big, I was going to skip ahead to the, the Howling Commandos. <clears throat> uh, yeah, well, one thing I did just want to... <clears throat> pardon me. One thing I did just want to address is uh, I really did like the sequence of once uh, once Cap is out of, the, uh, out of his um, procedure... And Erskine is dead, and they they've lost the Super Soldier uh, serum. One thing I really like is how they actually do show Cap, like you know, not fighting war, but he goes right into doing like war, the war bonds and those really corny kind of things to try and get people to you know enlist or, or you know donate with war bonds. And uh, I just think that was really really interesting because like you could see the frustration that he wants to be on the front lines fighting, but they don't know what to do with him because they they have no direction with Erskine gone. So he's just kind of performing in these one man. Uh, one man, sh- not one man shows. That's the wrong way of putting it. He's performing in these shows that are, you know, not really what he wants to be doing. Even if he's helping in his own way, it's still not what what he signed up for. So it's kind of interesting up until when they find out that Bucky is uh, gone missing. That that's all that they, they can think of to do with Captain America. And I think it kind of goes with a the theme of like, yeah, we have this character whose name is Captain America. Like that's, you know, we should really address that in the film in some kind of corny way. And that's why I think it works out really well and how he's able to stay as Captain America throughout the series. 
Absolutely, and I find it really true to his character. Uh, they're they're handing. He's become this, you know, uh, iconic um, character for for all of the U.S. And that's really what he was like in the '40s. Um, they're handing out reprints of Captain America comics issue one with exactly. you know him socking Hitler on the jaw on the cover. <laughs> I thought that was a really neat um, thing to do. And yeah, he's selling war bonds, which is what he did in the '40s through the comics. So yeah. it's it's really clever. Like that whole the writing of that is just is is brilliant. I re- I really like that. And then you know it's just you kind of gotta persevere and you gotta do everything you can. And it's you know just because he's in the army now and has this you know this body and he isn't sick anymore it's not just that easy it's not just going over there and it's you know sometimes you gotta persevere and i think that's a really important uh character trait for for steve rogers agreed um so we see uh the howling commandos which in the 60s was actually run by nick fury no way Um, yeah he was it was uh i think a world war ii era comic and you know they're GIs, and he's this badass, and he's got his Nick Fury and his Howling Commandos. That's so, amazing. Although Nick Fury is in this movie, um, they kind of separated it f- from that to the point where maybe because because Nick Fury has some form of of the super soldier serum, um, and that's why in the comics he's still alive, even though he's been around in World War II. It, it uh, slows his aging down. Um, very reminiscent of I, I, I honestly think Nick Fury is which is great because he's played by Samuel L. Jackson in the MCU is very similar to uh, your boy there from from the Halo trilogy uh, Johnson? Sergeant Johnson? Sergeant Johnson. That's Sergeant Same Johnson thing. to you not just Johnson. Sergeant Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> His because uh, he's got like a prototype for the uh, the Spartan program right? Yeah. So so it's Nick Fury's the same kind of thing. Um but in this the Howling Commandos are just people that have been in uh in the war um and fought alongside with Steve uh and Bucky and you know he goes to this this spot uh to save Bucky and, and to rescue them. So we got we got Dum Dum Dugan, my boy. Uh, who's who's fantastic? He's great. That bowler hat, that mustache, just kills it. <laughs> um, we got Gabe Jones, uh, and he's a great character. I like I like all of the lines he has in this, where he's, you know, he he learned German because he said the girls were cuter than than uh, learning French, and and just uh, great character. I don't know too much about him, but. I'm pretty sure... I don't know if it's been confirmed, but it's, like, highly, highly suggested that his grandson is, uh... What's his name? Ant- Antoine Triplet? Triplet from, From Shield? Uh, from Agents of Shield? Shield. Yeah. Interesting. That'd be, a, that'd be a cool little touch. I, I missed it at some point, but we know for a fact that, that Triplet, uh... is a grandson of one of the original Howling Commandos. Oh, And yes. there's, uh... There's another Howling Commando later on. Like, they add some members after Steve's gone and stuff in some stories. I don't know which ones, but but it's it's assumed that Gabe Jones is his grandfather. And I think at one point in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he makes, like, uh, he goes undercover and says his name is, like, Commander Jones or something and uses that as a fake name. So, like, almost for sure 
that's his his grandfather there. That's a nice touch. Um, we got the English Howling Commando, James Montgomery Fallsworth. <laughs> which is the most British English name that there ever was, which I like. And for that exact reason, uh, he was actually a superhero in the comics. Named? Union Jack. <laughs> Union Jack? Yeah, he was, he was a British superhero, um... <laughs> alongside having been uh, a Howling Commando, and I think he fought alongside uh, some other people in a group called the Invaders, or in a comic called the Invaders. I don't know too much about it, but I just found that out today, which I wasn't aware of. That's a cool little touch. See all these little things that you would never like pick up, like you know, a common moviegoer like myself wouldn't really pick up on. It's like these little touches that that cater to the fans, which I think really sell these movies. Definitely. Um, you got uh, Jacques Dernier, the the French. Howling Commando there, uh, Demolitions Expert. He's a, a fun character. He kills me. Yeah. Um, and then Jim Morita, uh, who, again, another another great scene when, when Steve's rescuing them, and he goes, he says something about, like, oh, how many different, like, people do they got, got down here? Like, when did they get any Japanese troops? I thought it was just our, our unit. And the guy goes, I'm from Queens. <laughs> and, that is uh, not. But again, Chuck, I think that's touching on the on the... You know Captain America's racist origins, you know, and I think that that's kind of leading into it, like how ridiculous yeah. that was. Like, yeah. So yes, even Japanese even post uh, post Pearl Harbor, he's not like you know being super racist, but but there's a touch of it there, which I thought was a nice nod. Um, and also saying that he's from Queens, uh, his grandson is actually uh, the principal of Peter Parker's high school in Queens. Oh, yes. That, that one I think I knew... You might have told me about that before, but I, I feel like I knew that. Yeah, so so and that role is reprised by Jim Marino. Yeah, because he, he plays the same character in uh, in Homecoming, right? He, he, plays, he plays the grandson, and then you see... Yeah. Uh, I think his grandfather in a picture in the back, and it's this, you know, like, kind of blink and you miss it sort of thing. Yeah, that's a nice little touch. Um... I guess we gotta give a nod to the the Stan Lee uh, cameo. What's uh, where does he pop up in this one again? He's a a random uh, military man when they're calling out Captain America's commendation and he's not there. Oh yeah. And then the one guy comes out to to say, "Oh, Cap's not here." And then Stanley nods to the guy beside him and goes, "Huh? I thought Captain America would be a little taller." <laughs> and uh, good old Stanley. Um, but so yeah, yeah we, we see uh, Howard Stark with the vibranium shield. Yes. Um, all the vibranium that they have, which we know now comes straight from Wakanda, um, turns it into a shield for Cap. So that's the, uh, the instance of that. And at the time, isn't that all the vibranium they have? Like, doesn't Howard Stark make a comment like that, this is all we have, or something along those lines? Yeah, yeah, that's that's everything. Um, which I also thought was interesting. I'm like, they're just, you know, because at first he's like, oh, it's just a prototype. It's, you know, made of vibranium. That's that's everything we have. And then he just, you know, Cap's like, well, I'll take it. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> it's not like this is, like, worth, you know, millions and billions and stuffs. But sure, have it for your shield. Oh, I forget uh, who which, says it, but someone makes a comment to one of the further movies that they had this... Uh, this technology and they use it to make a frisbee but i can't remember who says it right now oh man that is a great great you know line. the line i'm talking about right yeah i forget who says it me too well i'll we'll have to figure that out after but i remember that's a great line to get you made yeah. a frisbee 
and he lets it fall in the in in the ice for themselves there. Um, but uh, one of the sequences I really like in this movie, one of my favorite sequences, is just uh, uh, Steve and the Howling Commandos just like kicking ass all over Europe. Like that's that segment after where they're trying to find all the Hydra strongholds and they're just like kicking their way through Europe. I love that. Yeah, and then you see you see Bucky fall. Yes. Fall into the icy river there, setting up um, his arc for the next two movies. Yeah, uh, not how it happened in the comics. He he was actually uh, trying to stop a bomb from blowing up, and he defused it midair. Very similar to uh, um, to Steve stopping those bombs hitting uh, you know the eastern seaboard of North America there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're actually fighting uh, Baron Zemo at the time, which is uh, another. Civil War uh, Easter egg thing, yeah, Easter egg there. Um, yeah, so they they capture Zola, put him into uh, into custody there, and they, I guess he goes on to do some work for the SSR, and you know, start with Shield, uh, as we will see in the, in the next Captain America movie. Yeah, which is kind of like I thought a nice parallel too with World War II, like how Nazi scientists were recruited. It's the same. I, I like that. It's, it's an interesting uh, idea to go through with that. Yeah. Also, I mean, anytime you're writing any story, you should always be putting everything in for a reason. And I've I've not really figured out why, but I found it interesting that Colonel Phillips comes in with a stake, and you know the potatoes and stuff like that and uh, he offers it to Zola and Zola goes, I don't eat meat. And he says, why not? He goes, it disagrees with me. And so I thought it was really odd that they made they they went out of their way to add dialogue where Zola is a vegetarian. Oh, that's true, but so was was Hitler, so that's another thematic uh, consent that I like. Huh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah no, Hitler uh, was a vegetarian. Hitler, yeah, no, that's what's so so interesting. Weird. Says a, says a lot. Um, right. Gives them gives them layers. Interesting. Um, so yeah, not not too much uh, more to touch on from the movie that I found really interesting. Uh, the Tesseract sucks up the Red Skull, and as a character who did not get enough airtime for how great he was uh, a ton of fans are speculating that at some point he's going to come back because and, and they leave it open ended like is, is he just dead from that like I don't think so well see I left it that he's alive but unfortunately I, I can't see him returning to the MCU I just I, I, I would like it if they did I think he's one of their best villains actually but mm-hmm. I just can't see it working in a way especially this deep into the MCU now we, we have you know Thanos and all that to deal with like I just don't actually see him coming back as much as I would like it because he's Hugo Weaving is a phenomenal actor. He's, he's just like easily one of the top five villains in the MCU. I think it'd be great, but that's why I think they kind of put him into that open ended. You know, he could come back if they ever need him, but he's. I think yeah. for all intents and purposes in the MCU, he's probably dead or at least going to be left alone. So pre Avengers, I, I even though yeah, I don't see it happening either. I thought it was really smart to to leave it. You know, leave him open ended. He could come back or. Or at least him being in an Infinity Stone could have a play maybe some point mm. before the phase is over, but I, I wouldn't count on it. Um, but I mean, yeah, what we see about Loki being able to use an Infinity Stone to travel, uh, you know, 
we, we know the Red Skull has one of two options. He's either used that and teleported somewhere in which he could be dead or alive, or he's trapped in the stone itself, which is uh, a uh, plot device they've used in the comics at, at different points. True. Um, and then another thing... Uh, you, so, so we see Steve Rogers in, in the present uh, meeting up with uh, Nick Fury and uh, when he hears the, the game that was in 1940, 41 or 42 or whenever it was and knows that you know he's, he's not listening to the radio, he's in, in some kind of incarceration and people are wanting him to think that he's safe, uh, he busts out and then the agent that's supposed to be watching him calls up on her, her comlink or whatever and calls a, a code 13. Oh, which is a, another Easter egg again. So we got the Pier 13, we got Agent 13, we got Code 13, and I just really appreciate the uh, attention to detail in the numerology. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, the Marvel movies in general have a, a lot of attention to detail. Um, one thing that I think we forgot to talk about was the the final scene, well, not the final scene, but uh, Steve's final scene in the 40s when he's uh, boarded the plane and he knows he has no no hope and he has to, he has to put it down. I think that's probably one of the best scenes in any of the Marvel movies. I think that's that's really beautifully handled. I, I think uh, that the the relationship between Steve and Peggy, I think, is probably the single best romantic relationship in the MCU. That you really feel like the you feel everything there, and the acting between the beautiful Haley Atwell and, and uh, Chris Evans in that scene is phenomenal. It, 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 with the music and just the way it's done, and you know Steve. He thinks he's dying, like he, he, but he has to do the right thing, and he does it up until he's up until he has no choice. And just the, the the scene between those two is just very, very well done. I am I'm literally getting chills thinking about it when he when he yeah. says he needs a rain check on that dance. I I cry every time. Yeah, I get choked up watching it. that. Like that's a very, very emotional scene, and that's all yeah. because they did such a good job in the movie setting up the relationship between um, um, him and Peggy. Like that's why, and I think Peggy. Is, was is one of the best uh, love interests. She's way more than a love interest as a character, but I mean, for the speaking in terms of love interest, I think she's definitely one of the most well-rounded, like ones that, that I personally care about. But she's definitely. way more than that. She's also a kick-ass character in general. Definitely. Um, so after the Tesseract sucks up the Red Skull, it falls into the Atlantic, and while they don't find Steve, Howard Stark actually picks up the Tesseract. So that is in. Uh, SSR custody up until the events in the Avengers, which uh, we see uh, a scene from the Avengers in the post-credit scene, and you know a little a little teaser for for that happening because this was the film leading up to the Avengers. Um, so nothing super spectacular in uh, in the post-credit scene that we won't see that we don't see in the Avengers. But I mean, the Avengers being as iconic as it was as, of a movie, it was definitely necessary for that teaser and I, I know I appreciated it. Agreed. Um, so uh, next in line would be the Captain America first Avengers Avenger comic and honestly uh, Peter David did does a good job in fitting the story and using the exact lines into a comic um, but there from what I saw is not a single difference or any extra information that is necessary to the story that is in that comic. So if you don't read it, you will literally be missing nothing. 
that's kind of the approach I'm taking. As you know, when it comes to anything, I'm not normally too big on adaptations or novelizations. Like, I, I just consider, like, you know, I've been doing Star Wars recently. Like, I consider, I watch the movie. I know there's additional scenes in the novelizations, but for whatever reason, I just, I'm not too crazy about them. So when it comes to the adaptations of the movies themselves, I probably, I haven't read those, and I, I don't think I I really will. I'm sure there'll be, like, some nice, interesting tidbits and side bits, but it doesn't sound like there was for this adaptation anyway. Yeah, there there wasn't. Um, so, I guess we can put a pin in this one for, for week one. Uh, spoiler alert, we're doing week two in the exact same instance. But we will separate the files because, holy crap, we've been talking about Captain America for an hour. <laughs> Sounds about right. All right, so uh, that's it for week one. And uh, we'll see you guys in five minutes for, for week two. See you later. All right.